I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation, looking at basically the history of humanity from about a million and a half years ago, from Ashwellian hand axes on, uh, to very much including the present, to see if there are some emergent behaviors that humanity and then civilization and whatever's next seems to have that might give you some at least frame for thinking ahead. Uh, at long now, we only have in mind the next 10,000 years mostly, but why not take on the next million and a half years? Matt Ridley is um, the antidote to, in this book, his book called The Rational Optimist, to what is portrayed in another book I'll recommend to you called um, The Idea of Decline in Western History and Western Civilization. And for some reason, Western intellectuals keep liking to tell each other that things are going to hell and here's why, and here's who's to blame, and things like that. Here's the antidote, Matt Ridley. Woody Allen once said that mankind stands at a crossroads. One road leads to despair and total extinction, the other to utter hopelessness. <laughs> Let us pray we have the wisdom to make the right choice. It's that attitude that, as Stuart has just said, I think is all too prevalent and that I want to try and um, dissuade you from tonight. Now, it might seem very cheeky for a, a Brit from gloomy old Europe to come over here to wonderful San Francisco where you're all so optimistic um, and try and teach you optimism. Um, and it actually, to be a little more serious for a second, it might seem cheeky in a week when 20,000 people have died in a disaster to say that the world can get better and that the future can be better than the past. Just two things about Japan, though, that I want to say before I go on. The first is that because Japan was so wealthy, many fewer people died than would have done. If Japan had had the per capita income of Haiti, as we know from the Haitian earthquake recently, something like 300,000 people might have died in collapsed buildings. And if Japan had had the per capita income of Burma, something similar might have happened with the tsunami because 300,000 people died in a cyclone in, in, in Burma recently. So it's the very fact that it had the infrastructure, the communications, the technology, that so many people did not die. And that's what I want to try and talk about tonight. How do we raise human living standards? How do we improve the condition of people on the planet? And can we go on doing it? On my desk at home sits this object. It's an Ashwellian hand axe from half a million years ago. It's of a design that was used by Homo erectus for nearly a million years, possibly more. It's a beautiful technology, and it is a technology, but it didn't change. It was used all over the world, and it didn't change for a million years. 
That's 30,000 generations of technology without innovation. It's an extraordinary phenomenon when you think about it. And right next to it sits this object, <laughs> which is exactly the same shape and size and serves roughly the same purpose. In other words, I use it to execute my needs. And it's, of course, five years old, and it's out of date already. And it's this concept of innovation, this perpetual change, that I think is, is key to understanding human evolution. Now, there is a big difference between these two objects as well. One is uh, made from a single substance. The other is made from a confection of different substances, indeed from different ideas. The idea of plastic, the idea of metal, the idea of computing, the idea of the laser, they've all occurred to different people in different places at different times, and yet they've been embodied together in this object. And that, I think, is the key to understanding why human technology can raise living standards, because it brings together ideas uh, effectively to meet and to mate, or as I put it, it allows ideas to have sex. Every technology we use, when you think about it, is a combination of other technologies, other ideas. The pill camera is my favorite example. It takes a picture of your insides as it goes through. It came about after a conversation between a gastroenterologist and a guided missile designer. <laughs> why did this happen to us, and why now? Why to the human species, and why in the last 100,000 years or so? What's so special about this moment uh, in the long now? I don't think the, the answer for explaining the human takeoff of the last 100,000 years is culture, because Jap chimpanzees have culture. Uh, they teach each other how to crack nuts with rocks. They pass down traditions. I don't think it's self-awareness. It's clear that all sorts of other animals have at least budding self-awareness. And I don't think it's language, because now that we've looked at the genes of Neanderthals, we've discovered that they had the same genetic adaptations to or from language that, that we have, the FOXP2 mutation in particular. And we know that the split from the Neanderthals happened at least 400,000 years ago. So what is it? What, what was the trigger that changed uh, human uh, behavior to this perpetual innovation machine? If you look at the size of the human brain over the last um, few million years, and you plot on this where things happened that we think of as, as distinctly human, they kind of all come too early to explain our takeoff. We were standing on two legs at least four million years ago. So we freed our hands, which we think is an important thing. We invented tools two and a half million years ago, and yet, as I said, with the Australian hand axe, nothing really happened. We just had tools. We didn't in encounter innovation. We invented fire, we don't know when, sometime between half a million and one and a half million years ago. Um, it had an enormous impact because it enabled us to pre-digest our food, and that meant we could have smaller guts, and that meant we could have bigger brains. But it's not immediately clear that it was the thing that triggered takeoff. And even language, as I say, we don't know when it happened, but it looks like it comes too early in the story to explain this extraordinary takeoff. What I think explains human uh, uh, explosion into global dominance is the invention of exchange, the invention of the idea that you swap one thing for another. And no other animal does this. Other animals do reciprocity, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, but they don't swap different things at the same time. They might occasionally do it between a mated pair where sex is swapped for food in, in various insects and birds, but the general idea that it, strangers would go up to each other and swap things, 
I've got more of this than I need, you've got more of that than you need, let's swap them. It doesn't happen in other species. As Adam Smith famously said, no man ever saw a dog make fair and deliberate exchange of a bone with another dog. And the effect this had on cultural evolution was exactly the same, I think, as the effect that the invention of sex had on biological evolution. Because the invention of sex accelerated and made cumulative for the first time uh, genetic mutation and evolution. Here's an example. In an asexual species, as it's evolving along, you get two different mutations, a red one and a green one. One of them has to go extinct to make way for the other one if the other one's better, because you can only inherit a mutation from your direct lineage. Whereas in a sexual species, at some point an individual is going to inherit a mutation from both mutations, from different parents. And if they're both good mutations, then it can accumulate them. It can get different mutations onto the same, um, uh, into the same individual. So what sex does is it allows the species to draw upon the genetic inventiveness of the whole species, not just uh, its own lineage. And exchange has the same impact on human culture. Because of exchange, because of trade, we can draw upon the inventiveness of people in San Francisco and Shanghai at the same time. Now, I want to step back a little first and just talk about whether or not human beings are better off now than they have been before, and to try and persuade you that they are. Uh, and then I'm going to come back to this process of um, ideas having sex to explain why. Well, we're obviously producing more goods and services in the world. This is world product uh, corrected for inflation. But of course, there are more of us, so you'd expect that. So let's correct it for population and throw the graph back 2,000 years instead of 200 years. And it's still pretty spectacular with an inflection point at the Industrial Revolution. Let's go even further back. Let's go back a million years, where admittedly the economic data gets a little sketchy. And, <laughs> and we can see that it looks like the growth rate of world GDP per capita is increasing. In other words, there's an acceleration of GDP per capita going on. And just look at the numbers we're heading for here. $100,000 to $200,000 per head globally in today's dollars before the end of this century. That's the trajectory we're on, that our grandchildren will have an income three to six times as high as the average American today globally all around the world. Those are amazing numbers, if they can be sustained. So it's very interesting, I think, to, to understand whether or not this is possible. What about recessions? We know all about them. They're horrible and they're painful and we're in one at the moment. But if you look on the long scale, as I think the Long Now Foundation likes one to do, then they don't, on the whole, make that much difference. If you look, here's the Great Depression in American GDP, and here's the Great Recession. And in bet what's striking about the graph is not the dips, but the, the inexorable increase uh, in GDP per capita in between. And it's not at the expense, it's not just rich people getting rich, at the expense of poverty. Poverty's declining. There are many ways of measuring it. This is one of them, people living on less than a constant $90, $90 a year, as measured by Javier Sala e. Martin. And this is not what... Most people think this is not what the world leaders signed up to at Rio in, in 1992. They said, we're confronted with a worsening of poverty. No, they weren't. Poverty was declining at the time, and it's still declining. 
It's even declining in Africa now. It wasn't in the 1980s and 1990s, but it's now declining pretty rapidly. Africa had 5.5% economic growth uh, last year. Many environmentalists still haven't got that message and think that it's not possible to get Africa out of poverty. I think they're wrong. I actually think that we will see Africa following Asia into increasing prosperity in years to come. But, of course, money isn't the only measure of how well off you are. What really counts, the real metric of prosperity, is time. How long does it take you to fulfill one of your needs? If you had to get up in the morning and supply yourself with food and clothing and shelter and entertainment and all that, it would take you a long time to supply each of those needs. How long do you actually need to work to fulfill one of those needs today? Let's take electric light. If you want to read a book by the light of an 18-watt compact fluorescent bulb for an hour this evening, and I hope it's mine, then how long would you have had to work if you're on the average wage? And the answer is about half a second. Back in 1950, you'd have had to work for eight seconds on the average wage to earn that much light from an incandescent bulb. That's seven and a half seconds of economic growth which has appeared in the world since then. Seven and a half seconds that you can now spend earning something else. Or, if you're my children, leaving the light on. (laughs) And back in 1880, you'd have had to work for 15 minutes to earn that much light from a kerosene lamp. In 1800, the average person would have had to work for six hours to acquire that much light in the form of a tallow candle. The average person in 1800 could not afford a candle. That's the real measure, the reduction in the amount of time you have to spend to fulfill a need or a demand. And how is that possible? Well, in the end, it's due to technology, but why does technology help? It helps essentially because of this, comparative advantage. The only proposition, it has once been said, in the whole of the social sciences that is both true and surprising. David Ricardo, a London stockbroker, came up with this idea basically in 1817 and he was trying to explain why it's worth a country uh, trading with another country even if it's worse than that other country at producing everything. And here's his explanation in Stone Age terms. There are two men sitting around a fire and they need a spear and an axe to go out hunting. Adam is rather slow at making both spears and axes. Oz is faster at making both. But Oz is slightly better at spears, and Adam is slightly better at axes. So Oz doesn't need Adam, does he? He should just make a spear and an axe and leave Adam uh, and go off hunting. Well, no, because if Oz were to make two spears and Adam were to make two axes, and then they were to trade, then they would each have saved an hour of work. Because Oz would have worked for two hours instead of three, and Adam would have worked for six hours instead of seven. And, of course, this is only true because... Oz is better at spears and Adam is better at axes. But if you think about it, if they're trading, then that's bound to be true because Oz is going to get more practice at making spears and Adam at making axes. And so the more they exchange, the more they're going to specialize. And the more they specialize, the more value there is in exchange. It's a sort of perpetual motion machine that builds up. If they work for each other, they can raise each other's standard of living. So if you go back to this image and you ask yourself who made the objects, the the axe was made by someone for himself. The mouse was made by a team of people for me. They got together one day and they said, Matt Ridley needs a computer mouse, let's make him one. How many of them were in that team? There were hundreds, thousands, I think there were probably millions. Because you've got to include the man 
who was growing coffee in Brazil to feed the man on the oil rig who was drilling for oil, whose oil would be used to make the plastic, etc., etc. They were all involved in this cooperative enterprise to make me a computer mouse. They were all working for me. In the old days, you got rich by having people working for you, quite literally. Um, Louis XIV, it's a fair bet he didn't make that silly outfit for himself. <laughs> Louis XIV had 498 people to prepare his dinner every night. But here's a bunch of tourists going around his palace in Versailles. And each of them, when you think about it, has 498 people preparing his dinner tonight. They're working in bistros and cafes and restaurants and shops all over Paris, but they're ready at an hour's notice to drop everything and produce a meal for one of these people. They're working for him in just the sense that people were working for Louis XIV. Now, other animals have the habit of working for each other too, particularly the social insects, where the workers work for the queen and the queen works for the workers. But there's one big difference. In social insects, it only happens within the family, because that's what a colony is. It's a big family where everybody's related to the queen. And they have a reproductive division of labor. That is to say, they also work for each other in terms of reproduction. They delegate reproduction. That's the one thing we are not comfortable doing. It's the one thing we like to do for ourselves. <laughs> Even in England, we don't expect the Queen to do our reproducing for us. <laughs> and of course, what that means is that we can work, we've extended this process to working for strangers, whereas uh, in, in the ant colony, you only work for members of the colony. And if you think about it, farming is also a division of labor that's extended to other species. In this picture, the shepherd is working for the sheep, and the sheep are working for the dog, and the dog is working for the man. They're all working for each other. They're all raising each other's standard of living by specializing in what they're good at. So when did this happen? When did we start exchanging things? The best way of finding evidence is to find archaeological evidence of objects moving long distances. Because we know from modern aborigines, like uh, modern uh, hunter-gatherers like aborigines in Australia, that when you see hand axes moving long distances in Australia, it's because of trade, not because of migration. And when does this first happen in the human fossil record? And the answer is around 120,000 years ago. That's, by the way, 10 times as old as agriculture. Trade is 10 times older than agriculture. The first thing you see is obsidian hand axes in Ethiopia start to move long distances from the site, from the volcano where they've been quarried. But about the same time, you see these shells, which are clearly being used as beads, moving up to 100 miles uh, inland in Algeria from the sea. And that looks like it's the beginning of people exchanging things with each other across boundaries. And it must have been very difficult to evolve because remember up until that point, like chimpanzees today, no two males from neighboring bands could meet without trying to kill each other. And yet we've tried trading with each other instead. The effect this has is that human technology, the sophistication of human technology, depends upon the size of the population that's involved in the exchange. In the Pacific before Western contact, fishing tackle like this was more sophisticated on islands that had bigger trading networks than on islands which were more isolated. That, that is to say, the more contact you had with other people, the more sophisticated technology you could produce. So there's a kind of collective brain phenomenon going on here, that what determines the amount of technology we can produce is not how clever we are, 
but how much we're in contact with other people. And you can even see that what happens when you isolate people, as happened, for example, in Tasmania uh, when it became an island 10,000 years ago. Until that point, it was a peninsula off the southeast corner of Australia. Uh, what happened after that was not just that the Tasmanians had a slower progress of technology than the mainland Australians. Their technology actually went into reverse. They gave up a number of technologies that they had inherited at the start, in particular bone tools. They, f they gave up how to make them. It wasn't because they were becoming stupider. It was because their collective brain was too small to sustain the specialization and exchange necessary to keep technology evolving. And as a little check, a little cross-experiment, Tierra del Fuego did not suffer this. Why not? It's a similarly inhospitable island uh, um, with a similarly small population of hunter-gatherers. Well, the answer is because Tierra del Fuego is separated from South America by a very narrow strait, the Magellan Strait, whereas Tasmania is separated by the Bass Strait. Uh, and there was continuous trading contact across the Magellan Strait throughout this period, so Fuegians were drawing upon a collective brain the size of South America. Go back to this image again and ask yourself not just who made the mouse for me, but who knew how to make a mouse? And the answer is nobody. There is no person on the planet who knows how to make a computer mouse. That seemed like, might seem a rather rude thing to say in the Bay Area, but it's true. <laughs> the president of the computer mouse company doesn't know how to make a mouse. He just knows how to run a company. The person on the assembly line doesn't know how to make a mouse because he doesn't know how to drill an oil well. And you need to drill an oil well to get the oil out to make the plastic and so on. The knowledge of how to make most of our technologies is distributed collectively across society. It is not held in individual brains. That, by the way, is why I'm not very interested in IQ and the debate about whether one group is cleverer than another. What counts is not how clever people are, but how well they're communicating. And that, by the way, is, of course, why central planning doesn't work, because you're asking one person to be cleverer than the collective uh, uh, knowledge of many people. I have, of course, just been quoting from a famous essay by an economist called Leonard Reed called I, Pencil, in which he uh, uh, pretends to be a pencil and tries to understand his own origins and concludes that nobody knows how to make him even though he got made. And I think that's the magic of human technology. Of course, we've now connected our brains so that ideas can meet and mate faster than ever before thanks to the internet. And if you take a picture of the internet, it looks like a brain. It is a brain. We're nodes in its neural network ourselves. And we cannot but be accelerating um, the rate of human innovation as a result. So perhaps that 100000 to $200,000 estimate of GDP in the year 2100 per capita might even be an underestimate. Well, okay, we're better off, but are we healthier, happier, cleverer, kinder, cleaner, more peaceful and more equal? Yes. We're healthier. We're living about 30% longer than when I was born. Life expectancy is increasing globally at about five hours a day. That's because we're defeating premature mortality. This is data from Britain, but you can see the collapse of infectious disease, of respiratory disease, and more recently of, of strokes and heart attacks, circulatory disease. And you can see that non-appearance of a cancer epidemic that would shorten our lives as many environmentalists thought it would in the 1960s and 1970s. And you can even see on, this is US data, that cancer is beginning to fall 
we are beginning to win against cancer. We're cleverer. IQ's going up in all countries. Nobody quite knows why. It's called the Flynn effect. It's going up about three points a decade. Uh, it's probably because we're getting to poor kids who, have, uh, who used to be sick and, and not get proper nutrition, and we're making sure they get it, something like that. We're happier. Most people think there's no correlation between happiness and wealth, but it's not true. There is, both within countries and between countries and within individual lifetimes. The happier you are, on the whole, the, more likely you, the wealthier you are, the more happy you are. Uh, it's not a linear correlation. Uh, and, of course, you can be very rich and unhappy, um, but that's a good thing because it makes the rest of us happy. <laughs> We're kinder. This is donations to charity as a proportion of GDP in, in the UK. I'm sure it's the same over here. On the whole, it's going up. We're cleaner. Air pollution is, uh, is on the way down, so is water pollution in nearly all of the Western world. And it's getting worse in places like Beijing. But on the whole, we know that as you get richer, it is possible to start cleaning up your environment. A car produces about 90% uh, less pollution in terms of volatile organic compounds, carbon monoxide and nitrogen oxides, as it did in the 1970s per mile traveled. This wasn't expected. Life magazine said in 1970 that by 1985, air pollution would have reduced the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth by half. We're more peaceful. We're less likely to kill each other than at any time in history. The 2000s was the decade with the smallest number of deaths in war since 1945. Most people find that hard to believe, but that's because we live in countries which did have a rather bad decade uh, for war deaths in the last uh, decade. But globally, fewer people died in that decade in war than in any previous decade since the Second World War. We're more equal. Inequality is falling. It has to be falling when you think about it because poor countries are getting rich faster than rich countries are getting rich. So they're catching up. So Indians and Chinese are getting rich whereas Americans are not getting rich nearly as fast. And that's bound to reduce global inequality. Can this go on? Am I just the man who, falling past the second floor of the skyscraper, says, so far, so good? <laughs> well... I'd like to point out that we've been expecting it to come to a horrible halt for a long time in the past. We've had all sorts of reasons to fear that, that, that uh, Armageddon was just around the corner. This is a new tool from Google enabling you to count the number of um, mentions of a particular word in books uh, over time. And the yellow line is the mention of the word eugenics. Uh, which peaks in the early 20th century. And remember, this was a real scare at the time. Everybody thought that the human race was deteriorating because of the overbreeding of the feeble-minded and something must be done very urgently about it. And there were great big national commissions and things, and people like Winston Churchill and Theodore Roosevelt and George Bernard Shaw were determined that, that this was an urgent problem. And we didn't do very much. Well, we did a little bit too much about it in some countries. But, um, uh, but you know, it... it turned out not to be the problem that people expected. Fluoridation. Do you remember the poisoning of our bodily fluids that was going on in Dr. Strangelove? Uh, the word nuclear war peaks in the early 60s and again in the 80s. The phrase population explosion peaks in the 70s. Uh, the word pesticide in the 70s and 90s. Uh, acid rain peaks in the, in the late 80s and 90s. The Y2K computer bug. Do you remember that? How that was going to bring civilization to a grinding halt on the 31st of December 1999. Um, GM foods and, of course, most recently, climate change. And my point is simply that, with the exception of the last one where the jury's still out, 
all of them proved incapable of preventing the inexorable improvement of human living standards. All of them were, in a sense, false alarms. Take population, for example. Many people think population is still out of control in some sense. It's not. Uh, the rate of population increase has been falling for a long time. It was 2% in the 1960s. It's 1% today. The absolute number of people added to the world population has been falling now since the 1980s for 20 years. And this isn't because we adopted the policy recommendation of most experts in the 1960s that we would have to go for coercion um, that we would have to pass laws about how many ch children people could have. Well, one country did that, but the rest of us didn't, and we saw just as rapid a decline in the birth rate. Why? Because of benign factors, because essentially we got rid of child mortality in most countries, and therefore ch people began to plan smaller families, because people got richer and better educated and decided to invest in quality of children rather than quantity through education, etc., etc. These are the reasons, um, and they're all nice reasons. They're not nasty reasons. But can we really feed a population of 9 billion people, which we will have by 2050? And it'll peak, according to the United Nations median projection, at about 9.2, 9.3 in about 2070. Don't hold me to that. We're bound to find that's wrong, either up or down. But can we really feed that number of people? Well, at the moment, we need a large proportion of the Earth to feed uh, 6.9 billion people. So if we add another 2 billion people and we, ask, and we enable them to eat chickens and pigs and all these things that we like to eat, uh, then we're going to need a, need a lot more land. Now, it would be nice to do all this organically, but the problem with that is we're going to need a lot more land for the cattle whose, fertilizer is going to be, whose, whose manure is going to be used as fertilizer, etc., so we're going to need even more land. If we were using the mostly organic farming technologies of the 1950s today, we would need approximately twice as much land to produce the same amount of food as we produce today. So let's not do that. And let's treble yields. If we treble yields in farming, we could actually feed 9 billion people from a smaller acreage than we feed 6.9 billion today. So can we treble yields? Well, we've just done it. In the last 60 years, we trebled yields. This is the yields of rice, wheat, and maize, the big three cereal crops which provide about 60% of human calories. And they trebled over that time despite taking effectively no extra acres um, under the plough. Nobody thought this could be done. We were told repeatedly throughout this period by environmentalists such as Lester Brown that it could not be done. And yet it was done. And how was it done? It was done by getting dwarfing genes into wheat so that they put more of their energy into seeds rather than stalks. It was done by the use of machinery and chemicals and fertilizers and all these things that raised, raised yields in farming. And what that did was it enabled us to... Well, and, and what first thing it did was it lowered food prices. And food prices have been on a long-term decline. Now, we've just heard that they're, they're high at the moment. And some people even talk about record highs. But if you correct for inflation, these are not record highs. I mean, this is roughly where we're at at the moment. That's actually the 2008 spike, but the 2010 spike is at about the same level as that. Um, it's an uptick, and it's causing real pain, but it's from a very low level. And what this means is that by increasing yields, we've actually been able to spare land. If you go in the woods of New England, you find stone fences like this running through the landscape where people used to have... Um, uh, farms. New England used to be 70% farmland, now it's 70% woodland. 
Um, the more we can increase farm yields, the more land we can spare for national parks and wildernesses. There's an interesting calculation done by a guy called Helmut Harbel in Vienna, who with splendid Teutonic precision has worked out that human beings are eating 23.8% um, of all the plant matter grown on the earth each year. Um, uh, that is to say, of net primary production. Uh, and he's done the map for different parts of the world. And, and on the bottom graph, you can see this. And the darker the area, the more of the primary production of the earth we're pinching for ourselves and our animals. But the top graph shows something interesting. It's what effect we're having on primary production. Are we raising or lowering the productivity of plants? And it turns out that in some areas, like northern Europe, you can't see it very well on the chart, um, we're actually raising the productivity of the land, of, of plants, so much that even though we're pinching a big chunk of it, there's about as much left over for nature as if we weren't here at all. And he says that it's quite feasible to imagine a world in which we take more than a quarter of the plant production for our own use, but that we so increase the productivity of ecosystems through fertilizers and irrigation and things like that, that actually there's just as much left over for wildlife as before. But this, of course, depends on um, fuel. It depends upon tractors and gasoline and, and diesel and gas and all these things that agriculture depends upon. Aren't they going to run out? Well, they haven't yet, and we've been saying they will for 150 years, actually. There are predictions going right back to the 1860s of a coal, peak coal, which was um, predicted by the economist Jevons in 1860s, leading to a British royal commission on what to do when the coal ran out. That was in 1860. Um, and people like Jimmy Carter were saying that, Jimmy, that, uh, that uh, oil was going to run out imminently in, in, in the 1970s. And likewise, the book Limits to Growth in 1970 projected that, um, that we were headed for a disaster because of lots of other minerals, lots of other elements and metals and so on running out. It didn't happen. Minerals, on the whole, got more abundant as we got more ingenious at finding them, and they got cheaper. This is the reduction in the price of metals over the last few um, decades and centuries, uh, and it's been a pretty spectacular uh, reduction in the affordability of all of these metals. And by the way, we've just had a revolution in energy that is really quite extraordinary. It's happened in two years, and it's all about shale gas. Uh, until two years ago, we thought there was perhaps 30, 40, maybe 50 years of, of gas left in the world, uh, and that it would, would perhaps be the first of the fossil fuels to run out. That's now been turned on, the head, on its head by the discovery of enormous reserves of shale gas which can be economically exploit, exploited at prices way down below even the price of getting coal out. Here's a shale gas uh, drilling rig in Pennsylvania um, producing uh, shale gas. And this is an idea of just how much the estimates of the amount of stuff have changed in the world. The International Energy Agency estimates that there's 250 years' worth of gas in the world now. That's quarter of a millennium. That surely is long enough for us to find an alternative to fossil fuels if we need to. So the idea that agriculture can't deliver because it can't, uh, it's going to run out of gas to make fertilizer just no longer adds up. And by the way, um, we do indeed need to get energy from somewhere for civilization, and there are lots of ways of doing it. This is one, to put gigantic windmills all over the landscape. 
Um, and windmills do produce electricity, but it's worth just putting it in perspective. That's how much a wind turbine produces per year. That's how much a single shale gas well produces uh, in a year. And so which would you rather have? Uh, 48 of these for 25 years, which is their natural lifetime, or one of those for 30 days, which is how long it's there. When it goes, there's just a Christmas tree apparatus on the ground pumping the gas. That's why I think it's not at all obvious that renewables are greener than uh, fossil fuels. Because renewables have other disadvantages too. Here's a white-tailed eagle killed by a wind turbine uh, in Norway. 24 golden eagles a year are killed by one wind farm in California. Ah, yes, but aren't fossil fuels going to bring a civilization to a horrible halt by warming up the climate? Well, we don't know yet, absolutely, and I'm the first to admit that I don't know. But I am yet to be persuaded that there is something here that we should be really immediately worried about or alarmed about. It's possible, but it doesn't look to me yet very convincing. We've seen a warming over the last 30 years. This is the satellite data, which is roughly consistent with the ground data. It's, it shows a slightly less of a warming. Um, but this is a warming at a very low rate. It's a rate of um, uh, um, uh, less than... Uh, 0.1 of a degree per decade. It's nothing, uh, it's, sorry, less than 0.2 of a degree per decade. It's not nearly enough to get us to two degrees per century, which is the sort of thing that the International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change talks about. And we're seeing other signs that the world is getting warmer or sea level is definitely rising, although it's not showing any sign of acceleration and it's been arising since long before um, human impact started. Um, Greenland, it's, it's rising, by the way, the sea level at about the rate of a foot a century. And I think on the whole, human civilization can probably work out how to cope with a foot a century. Greenland is indeed losing ice. It's losing ice at the rate of about 200 cubic kilometers a year. That's a large number. Put it in perspective, though, it's less than half a percent per century. So Greenland will be 99.95% intact after 100 years. That doesn't yet seem to me to be something we need to worry about. Glaciers are retreating, yes, but they have been since the middle of the 19th century, since we started coming out of the Little Ice Age. There's no particular evidence of an acceleration in recent years due to human impact. The frequency of storms um, is roughly the same as it's always been. In fact, it hit a record low in the last year or so. Um, and we've now had the global warming scare for long enough to start to look back at some of the predictions that were made about it at the start. And here's one that Jim Hansen produced in 1986 uh, in which he drew a number of lines depending on what we did about carbon emissions. And the top line that you see is the one that will happen, he said, if we don't do anything about carbon emissions. In fact, our carbon emissions have gone up faster than in that assumption. Uh, and yet, this is, where the climate has, this is where the temperature has ended up, way below all of the lines. So when people say that global warming is happening worse than predicted... I simply don't know what they're talking about. It seems to me to be happening less badly than, than predicted. Now, there's plenty of evidence that it may accelerate, etc., etc. We should be concerned about it. But I'm not yet convinced that it's, um, uh, that it's uh, going to derail civilization. Uh, in fact... There's plenty of evidence. For example, the tree line in, in, in the Urals uh, is lower than it was in the Middle Ages. We're not yet in uncharted territory in terms of warmth, even in this millennium, uh, let alone over in this interglacial period. 
and when we had a much warmer period. That's the interglacial. We're just coming out of the coldest part of it, the Little Ice Age, back in the medieval... The, the, Holocene Optimum, 7,000 years ago, it was a good deal warmer. That's when the Sahara was green and so on. Um, and this is, to me, one of the most disturbing things about the whole climate debate because this is uh, from a lecture given by Richard Muller at Berkeley uh, just recently, and it shows um, the effect of that notorious email about using Mike's nature trick to hide the decline. This is what was meant by this. This is what the tree ring data shows, a downward dip at the end. And watch what happens when you use Mike's nature trick to hide the decline. So I think we're almost exactly on course for a mild warming in this century that is completely consistent with a full greenhouse effect from carbon dioxide, but is not consistent with the kinds of positive feedbacks that are built into most of the models and that predict a three or four degree warming. But even if it does happen, are we really sure that, it's going to, that we're not going to be able to cope with it as a civilization? After all, we've had warming in the 20th century, and something like malaria actually retreated dramatically during this century. The graphs show where malaria was in 1900 and where it is today. And the blue, chart at the, bottom, the blue on the chart at the bottom shows where malaria has retreated. The red on the chart at the bottom shows where malaria is getting worse. Now, malaria didn't retreat because we did something about the climate. Malaria retreated because we did something about human, living, human behavior, human living standards, human technology, human infrastructure. We basically uh, went indoors at night and closed the windows and things like that, and we, uh, we defeated mosquitoes in all sorts of different ways. The number of deaths from extreme weather, that is to say floods, droughts, and storms, is 93% lower than it was in the 1920s. The probability of dying in extreme weather is 98% down from what it was in the 1920s. This isn't because storms have got less dangerous. It's because we're better at defending against storms and droughts and floods. We're better at making sure food gets to people in droughts. We're better at, at communicating and, and transporting people. And we're better at defending ourselves generally. And I think that's likely to continue, even with... Uh, quite severe warming in the next decade. And it's worth remembering that the more carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere, the faster our crops are going to grow. Um, the, the rate at which crops grow depends on, on, on the ambient concentration of carbon dioxide. And that's what a plant looks like grown in 750 parts per million of carbon dioxide. Um, and that means that plants have less demand for water and things like that, so actually they'll be able to survive droughts better. Besides, we are actually progressively decarbonizing our economy. We're not doing it fast enough, perhaps, but we are doing it. We've been doing it for 150 years, not because of policy, but because of technology. As we shifted from wood to coal to oil to gas, we shifted from a high-carbon, low-hydrogen uh, fuel to a high-hydrogen, low-carbon fuel. And we're on track to have about 90% hydrogen and 10% carbon in our fuel mix uh, sometime around uh, the late 21st century. Well, I've given you some reasons why I, on the whole, think that this century is going to be great and that most of the worries we have about it uh, are um, uh, overblown. 
I'm certainly not saying that bad things won't happen. There will be wars. I don't think we'll extinguish wars. There will be natural disasters. There will be man-made disasters. There will be dictators. There will be uh, idiotic things done by human beings. We always will do things like that. But isn't it necessary to be pessimistic? Isn't it a better idea to be cautious and worried because then we can solve our problems? Well, actually, I don't think so. Archimedes, when he set out to solve uh, problems, wasn't, uh, he was living in the richest part of the world at the time, in ancient Greece. Uh, and he was the most a- in the most ambitious civilization on the planet, not the most worried civilization on the planet. You can say the same of Al-Khwarizmi in Arabia, and Fibonacci in Renaissance Italy, and George Stevenson in Victorian Britain, and uh, Thomas Edison in, 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 in uh, 19th century America, and Steve Jobs today. Each of them lives in the richest place in the world at the time, and in the place with the most ambition, and the place with the most optimism, and the place with the most hope. You don't get innovation out of despair. There isn't a lot of software innovation going on in Zimbabwe at the moment. Well, isn't it complacent to be an optimist? Isn't that a sin? Well, I don't think so. I actually think that what is complacent is to think that today's technologies are good enough and that we can't do better. And to think that, if we, that we should prevent genetically modified food because we think pesticides are okay as they are. I think it's better to, to move forward in technology, and that is actually a less complacent view of the world. And as for policies based on pessimism, here's one based on climate pessimism. We're taking 5% of the world maize crop and turning it into ethanol in order to fill our cars with ethanol. And that's had the, the effect of reducing, um, displacing about 0.6% of world fuel. Um, so even if we took half the maize crop and turned it into ethanol, we'd still only displace 6% of world oil use. And we're doing it at the expense of increasing world food prices and therefore making hunger worse in countries. I simply don't see that the pessimism uh, that, base, that is based on this, that drives this policy is justified. In fact, I think that the story of history and humanity says that we can actually, we do actually do more for less. That if we have higher farm yields, it means we destroy less rainforests because we don't need so much land. If we have new technology, we actually use less resources. We, we actually become more efficient in the way we, uh, our technology works. If we use gas and nuclear power and things like that, then we won't need to sacrifice the landscape to renewable energy. If we make more wealth, then we will have less environmental loss. There's a thing called the environmental Kuznets curve, which predicts the level of income at which countries start to care about the environment. And above that level of income, they start to do dramatic things like reforesting and demanding clean air laws and things like that. Countries like China are reaching that point at the moment. And here we are doing more for less, producing more prosperity for less energy um, uh, uh, progressively every year, not just... Uh, in the Western world, but in, all, in, in China and in Russia and in India as well. Well, this is the nightmare that we often hear, expressed in this case by Ban Ki-moon, that the world's current economic model is an environmental global suicide pact that will result in disaster if it isn't reformed, that we need a revolution on how to make it more sustainable. And here's the opposite view. 
that if we had a strong commitment to market-based solutions, international mobility of people, ideas, and technology, the global economy expanding at an average rate of 3%, so the global average income reached $21,000 by 1950 in today's dollars, that there would be great improvement in overall health and social conditions of the majority of people, Energy and mineral resources would be abundant because of rapid technological progress which both reduce the resources needed to produce a given level of output and increases the economically recoverable reserves, resulting in rapid technological progress which would free natural resources currently devoted to the provision of human needs for other purposes, increasing ecologic resistance. But these aren't my words. These are words that come from a document put out by Ban Ki-moon's own organization, the United Nations, to describe one of the economic scenarios used in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, projections of what's going to happen in the future. This is the high growth model. This is how they describe it. And I think they may have a point here, that actually the richer we get, the more we can cope with environmental problems. Sustainability, after all, is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. I'm not convinced, much as I love local production, self-sufficiency, low technology, low growth, organic farming and renewable energy, I'm perfectly happy with these things in, in my own life, but I'm not convinced that they are going to be as good for the world as trade, specialization, high technology, high growth, intensive farming and lots of natural gas that in fact the old Paul Ehrlich idea that the impact of human beings on the planet is proportional to population times affluence times technology, I think is wrong. I think the evidence suggests that it's more like this, that the impact is indeed proportional to population, but that divided by affluence and technology, that the richer and more technological we get, the less our impact on the planet. Well, let me end with this quotation. We cannot absolutely prove that those are in error who say society has reached a turning point, that we have seen our best days. But so said all who came before us and with just as much apparent reason. On what principle is it that with nothing but improvement behind us, we are to expect nothing but deterioration before us? Well, that wasn't said by me or someone like me recently. That was said by Thomas Babington Macaulay, the historian, in 1830. This was just before living standards of working people in Britain began their extraordinary historic rise for the first time as a result of the Industrial Revolution. This was before Britain even started really getting rich. And yet he was already fed up with pessimists saying it cannot get better than this, with pessimists essentially being complacent. So I think in going from the self-sufficiency of the Australian hand axe to the networked brain of the computer app, we have actually given ourselves an extraordinarily bright future. Thank you very much. Uh, Gordon Garb asks, was acid rain a false alarm or was it a case of addressing a potential problem and changing our behavior to deal with the problem? Um, a little bit of both. Acid rain certainly existed. I mean, there was no question about the acidification of the rain by... You guys caused it for Europe, as I remember. 
We Brits, probably, yes, because of the prevailing wind or something, or yeah, our coal, or, yes, you're right. Um, I covered that story for The Economist for several years, and I gradually became more and more cynical about it, not about the fact that rain was acidified, and not entirely about the acidification of fresh water. There was indeed an issue there. But the forest death just didn't happen. And it, didn't, it wasn't that we changed the policy and that prevented it happening. It just didn't happen. The biomass of forests was increasing in the 1980s before we passed any laws. This was true in, in America and it was true in Europe. And the great big NAPAP, National Acidification, Acidified Precipitation Assessment Panel, mm-hmm. which... Um, God, Good for think, you. That was close. <laughs> which um, I think Congress authorized, came to the conclusion that there was no death of trees as a result of rain acidification at all. So I think it was largely a false alarm because it was forest death that was the one that caught the people's imagination, etc. Now, there were acidified lakes, but again, NAPAP concluded that 4% of lakes were acidified instead of 50%, which was the early estimate. So it was an exaggeration rather than uh, a total false alarm. Is this going to be one of those subjects where you say that actually acid rain was good for us? (laughs) Well... um, (laughs) Nitric acid is a fertilizer. Aha. And there is no question that, um, uh, nitri- uh, that uh, f- there was a slight increase in the rate of growth of trees in places like Sweden and Germany in the 1980s. At the time, they were all supposed to be dying. And it's probably because of the nitric acid from the fumes from cars and petrol stations, uh, power stations. Now, um, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have got rid of... Uh, uh, sulfur emissions from power plants and to you know done something about nitrogen emissions from cars because there are all sorts of other problems. I mean, local emissions of, of sulfur dioxide can indeed do real harm and, and of course local emissions of nitrogen oxides from cars can cause urban smog and things like that. So I'm all for doing something about it. But the idea that, uh, you know, um, all conifer forests in Germany will be gone by the year 2000, German Ministry of the Interior, 1983... Not true. It just, you know, it was nothing like true. Uh, here's one from the other side. It's kind of a, a uncredited. Can we sustain growth of progress with fewer and fewer people every year after 2070? Is it a coincidence that all progress seems to mirror population curves going up? I think that's a really interesting question, and, and I have a... a a sneaking feeling that my optimism may be a little wrong in that, in that one, uh, in that I do think it seems to be harder to keep innovating in societies that have small numbers of young people. Um, uh, that, that, you know, part of the reason Japan just couldn't keep the gig going in the last two decades uh, was because its population just became so top-heavy with old people. Now, nothing wrong with... I mean, you know, I'm nearly as old as you, Stuart, and, uh, you know, I'm... uh, uh, You know, I still think we're both open-minded sort of people, but uh, it nonetheless is true that there's a demographic sweet spot that coincides with rapid economic growth. It's when you've had a huge population boom, so you've got a lot of young people, 
but those young people themselves are having fewer babies. So you actually get this sort of bulge of workers with not very many dependent children and not very many dependent elderly. And that's where Asia was for most of the last two decades. And that's where Africa, funnily enough, is going to be in the next decade, interestingly. So it's possible that when we're all declining, you know, when the population is literally going down in every, well, most countries in the world and in the world on average, mm. it's possible that we will not be able to sustain the kinds of rates of innovation and rates of growth that will, will, will keep us on track for these kind of futures. Uh, but I think I'd rather live in a world with, um, not that it's my choice, but with you know, 9 billion people and a slower growth rate than 30 billion people and a faster growth rate. Well, just look at it even, not only the population curves going up and down, but the urbanization. So yeah. for the next 30 years, the developing world has got the most enormous cities with what you would probably call the richest social capital, the most sexual exchange of ideas going on at any time in history, presumably, amongst populations that are uh, basically very young, just as you described them. And so uh, for a period of time now, the next 30 years, the global north where we live, we live, uh, is pretty much old cities full of old people, increasingly. And the rest of the world is the largest cities in the world by far now, except for Tokyo or places like Mumbai and Lagos and Dhaka and so on, Mexico City. And this is where all the young people in the world are. Um, now, what we I work sometimes with national security people, and they always say young people equals, uh, and young males in China equals uh, basically young soldiers. <laughs> or criminals. Yeah. Well, when you're in national security, everything looks like a soldier or a criminal. But <laughs> for the rest of us, uh, you know, it looks like competition. They want our jobs, and they're getting them. Um, they're making our stuff. How does that play over 30 years? Because after 30 years, with their birth rate going down in all these places, what I hadn't gotten until I read uh, Fred Pierce's book, The Coming Population mm -hmm. Crash, is that once a society ages and the population pyramid stops looking like this and looks like that, uh, it stays that way. And so this, there's this last boom of young people that we get in the global south and the developing world over the next 30 years, and then other things being equal, uh, it stabilizes. So given all that, and given your theories how does this next 30 years play out? Well, short answer is I haven't the foggiest. And I learn from people like you, in, in, particularly in this urbanization point, where I think you've done some amazingly interesting uh, analyses, Stuart. So if you don't know, then I don't think I know. But um, I, I think, is it really, I mean, when you think about entrepreneurship, you have to be an irrational fool to be an entrepreneur. You've got to believe that, in some sense, you're going How to be... How many irrational fool <laughs> entrepreneurs are in this audience? <laughs> yeah. You've got to believe you you're can be... You're in a hotbed of irrationality. Exactly, yeah. and good for you, and thank you, um, because you've got to believe you can beat the odds. And um, maybe the odds get a little better when there's fewer <laughs> people trying to do it. <laughs> when most of us are sitting around watching TV... Uh, the relatively few young people can uh, have a slightly better chance of pulling off an entrepreneurial success. So maybe the incentives are still there, even though there's not so many of us. Um, uh, I, I think it is... I, I mean, I, I, I'm not yet at the point where I, where I think that a, a, um, 
a shrinking population is going to be a disaster. Because after all, you know, let's say Japan's future is what we've got. In other words, stagnation economically for a few decades. It's stagnation at a pretty high level of standard of living. You know, it's not exactly misery in mm. Japan. Well, obviously it is in parts of Japan this week. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's not that bad a future. So uh, I still see it as a bit of a soft landing on population and on entrepreneurship and that kind of thing. But I think it's possible that that might dent the acceleration of growth that I'm talking about. Here's a question, anonymous. Uh, what should the progressive movement learn from your worldview? In fact, take it apart a little bit. Uh, who pays attention to you, conservatives or progressives, and what do they do with what you tell them? Well, funny enough, conservatives don't like my line either because they're terribly pessimistic. They, you know, they think the government's driving everything to disaster. Um, uh, and progressives don't like it because I say that um, it's the market, not the government, that's, that's going to sort us out. Um, but if you take the strict meaning of the word progressive, I think I am a progressive. I, I'm, I'm hugely in favor of progress. I'd like to see more of it. Uh, I think it's, it's a good thing. Um, but in some sense, progressive has come to mean believing in top-down solutions, believing that you... you, you you see a problem and you go in and you, you enact a policy to deal with it. And what I'm talking about is, is how an awful lot of these solutions are sort of bottom-up. Uh, and that's more amenable to, to so-called conservatives, or at least free market uh, people. Who are, and, and there's a very nice analysis that a guy called Brink Lindsay has done of the culture wars of the 60s and 70s, which I think captures this political point quite well. He says that, look, what happened was there was enormous economic growth. It led to social liber liberation. It led to, essentially, the women's movement, civil rights, all these kind of things. Uh, the left liked the results but hated the mechanism that produced it. The right loved the mechanism and hated the results. <laughs> um, I like both. <laughs> okay, related to that, Alexander Rose asks, most of the emissions cleanup that you mentioned comes from government laws, not market forces, but I don't see much mention of this. Do we still need government, please? Oh, yes, of course we still need government. I mean, for a start, we need to decide which side of the road we're going to drive on, etc., etc. You know, there's all sorts of um, things that wouldn't work if we didn't have uh, some kind of enforcement. And a man with a man with a gun at the back of the room is, is still necessary. That's what government is in the end. Um, uh, is sort of still necessary. Um, you've got a knife. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, the monopolization of force is great because it means that you don't have to do the force yourself. You know, I, I see that one of the great benefits of government is that is that it will take revenge on my behalf if a crime is committed against me. I don't have to go out and, you know, have a vendetta. Um, that kind of thing. So that, I've got a long way from air pollution, haven't I? Um, you're absolutely right. Air pollution uh, laws have helped. Um, although, you know, technology was improving it before, and if you look at water purity standards, funnily enough, there, you can hardly see the effect of, of laws. The, the graph just continues at, at sort of the same rate when they come in. Um, so quite a lot of it would have happened anyway because of common law and lawsuits and people saying, you know, I, I stop polluting my stream, etc. Um, but uh, I, I, I have no problem with saying that let's get government to sort out some of these problems. Um, In your book, you say uh, government should tax carbon. 
Yes. I'm not sure I still think that. Um, <laughs> uh, what I meant by that was, look, there's a possibility that carbon is a big problem, uh, and therefore we should do our best to discourage its use. And in the good old Pigovian uh, sense, you know, if you want to discourage use, you tax it, tax mm -hmm. something. Um, uh, m my problem really is that now that we've seen, uh, well, there are two problems. One is that if you actually look at what I pay for the diesel I put in my car in England, uh, about two-thirds of it, I think, goes to the government as tax, or maybe a third, I can't remember, but a big chunk of it. And it must look free here to you. It, it, well, yeah, I did. I, I, um, yesterday I filled up my mother-in-law's car in, in um, Houston and I prepaid and <laughs> ended up overpaying. I couldn't fill the tank because it was so cheap. <laughs> um, but um, I didn't know what to do about that, by the way. Um, uh, and, um, but anyway, that, the point is that if you go to Nick Stern's report on the damage done by, likely to be done by climate change, uh, and you take his assumptions, which are extreme assumptions, he, he, he assumes extremely high rates of warming, he assumes extremely high rates of damage from warming, higher than most of the models accept, mm -hmm. and he, he assumes no discount rate, so he says we should be paying for it now rather than waiting to pay for it when we're richer. Um, and... Uh, Take those assumptions. He comes out and he, he says basically we should be paying $80, pounds a ton, $80 a ton um, carbon tax. Well, you run through the calculation when I fill my diesel. It's actually about, it's higher than that already. So in that sense, we're already taxing carbon through these various fuel duties, etc. Well, you also run a coal mine. Do you get taxed for, uh, at, the, at the mine for your carbon? No, uh, you're mm -hmm. right. That, 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 you know, carbon, uh, I mean, coal is uh, undertaxed, I think. You know, it does more damage to the environment, etc., etc. As you say, on my land in the north of England, there is a coal mine, mm -hmm. and I make it's money out of it. It's a very green coal mine. Cool to visit, all that stuff. <laughs> I've done it. Uh, Coles, um, he lives in Newcastle. Coles to Newcastle. It's because Coles came from Newcastle, from his ancestors, the Industrial Revolution got going. That's why he likes it so much. Yeah. I, that, you guys did it. Well, I'm very, I have this one ancestor who was the first person to put a steam engine in a coal mine in 1714 to pump water out of, out of a mine that had ruined three other people, and he made it pay. That was it. That was the elbow and all those curves. He, he was the elbow. He was the one man who started the whole thing. Um, uh, and, uh, and if you think about it, you know, it was a pretty wonderful thing to get cheap energy to people. Mm -hmm. It meant that they could... Um, clothe themselves and feed themselves much more cheaply. It meant that essentially... Well, you, you stopped deforesting England, for one thing. Well, that's right. I mean, if we hadn't happened on coal in England, we'd have deforested... We, by, by 1830, we were using as much coal as would, would come from forests twice the size of England. You had already deforested Scotland at that point, which yeah. hasn't come back yet. Indeed, yeah. It may. Um, uh, it may, um, indeed, yes, exactly. Um, but, you know, if we With were still... With carbon dioxide, those trees will grow faster, right? That's right, a little bit, a <laughs> little bit. Beavers that, are coming back. This guy's a zoologist, remember. Just talk about a bird or an animal, he starts to get happy. <laughs> um, and you've introduced a lot of animals on your 30 land. 30% right? improvement in uh, growth rates of wheat under uh, doubled carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. 
Now, it might, you know, that's other things being equal and it might not be achievable, etc. But it, it, it's, a non, it's a non not insignificant point that often gets forgotten in the debate. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying we should have more carbon dioxide. I'm definitely not that nutty. Um, uh, um, but, and, you know, my self-interest says that I should not want carbon taxed because I have a financial interest in mining. But I do think that we should do something about carbon dioxide. I'm just not quite convinced that a carbon tax is... is necessarily going to be the right way of doing it. It's better than cap and trade, which seems to me too easy to game politically. Mm-hmm. I used to love cap and trade. When it was done for the acid rain thing, I thought it was brilliantly done. You know, the mm. sulfur cap and trade worked really well. It got sulfur emissions down faster and cheaper than, than command mm. and control would have done. Um, uh, but that's because there were relatively few actors and, mm. uh, in, in the market. The, the problem of how to allocate carbon credits in a political system where everybody wants a favour is just too difficult. So a carbon tax is better than that, I think. Um, And I think if you can make a carbon tax revenue neutral, this was the argument in the book. Okay, I'm reconvincing myself here. Um, If you can make a carbon tax revenue neutral, in other words, you say we're going to cut other taxes Mm -hmm. um, so that uh, then you can make it politically acceptable, and it's not a bad idea to tax carbon. Which other taxes would you cut to match the carbon tax that you would increase? Well, ones that prevent um, job creation, basically. So payroll taxes, say, for example. You know, ones that prevent employers taking people on. Fair enough. Talking about energy, uh, everybody's talking about nuclear this week. Yeah. And uh, you're in my nemesis, George Monbiot, the columnist, commentator for The Guardian, uh, announced that this week he has gone from being anti-nuclear, he's been sort of neutral about nuclear in the last couple of years, and now, thanks to uh, Fukushima, he is absolutely pro-nuclear. George loves a fight. And so (laughs) he's seen the worst that could happen. It wasn't that bad. Uh, He realizes how all renewables, if they add up, will basically decimate England. There's not enough place for all those wind collectors and sun collectors and hell with it, let's just do nukes. Um, what the hell do we make of that? Is this a guy who thinks you and I are... are uh, the devil incarnate. Yes. Um, um, well, second-guessing George Monbiot's brain is, is not something I'm any good at. Um, I'd rather talk about nuclear power. Um, I'm a nuke-warm, lukewarm nuclear person. Um, I sort of like it but I'm not wholly convinced. Um, and of course, you know, being a contrarian sort of guy, I love the safety. I think it's an incredibly safe technology. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look at Chernobyl. We put the stupidest regime in charge of the stupidest design you can think of. <laughs> and they killed 54 people on the day, which is pretty horrible. Maybe 4,000 extra cancers, no extra birth defects. The data's pretty clear on that. I think you and I have agreed on that. Um, compare that with the death rate. You know, 20,000 people may die in Chinese coal mines every year. Um, 29 people were entombed in a, in a coal mine in, in New Zealand the other day. Um, fossil fuels kill a lot more people than that. Um, so in safety terms, I think there's no question nuclear is great, even with the risk of accidents, etc., etc. My problem is economic. I just think that the costs of nuclear are not going to be able to compete, particularly with shale gas. Um, Unless we tax it. Unless we tax Mm -hmm. the the shale gas. Yeah, but you've got to... This is back to my point about the fuel duty. You've got to tax the bejesus out of it before you really make a difference. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and um, uh, the moment there's a nuclear reactor being built in Finland, um, and it's running about 50% over budget and four years behind um, schedule. And uh, it, um, uh, it's going to come in at, at the sort of cost per kilowatt hour that, that is far more expensive than coal and gas. Mm. Um, and it's, the other thing about nuclear is they're kind of great big monstrous things that you know, are top-down designed by sort of bureaucrats and they're two gigawatts in size or whatever. They're just big computer mice. They're big computer mice. Yeah, you're right. But, uh, and they're, they're making them smaller now. Is that okay? Yeah, that's great. I, I, I agree with you. I think these modular kind of nuclear batteries that you put in a town for 25 years and they kind of run themselves. Um, and the ones with the, the passive safety stuff is fantastic. And as you know, I'm getting quite interested in this thorium technology, although I don't understand run it. Run your thorium dream. Cause how many thorium enthusiasts are in this group? There, there tend to be groups of people who are on your side in this matter. Well, as I understand it, thorium, thorium as a nuclear fuel compared with uranium has several advantages. It's, it's uh, more abundant. Um, it can't do a chain reaction on its own. You have to put the neutrons in, so it's inherently safe in that sense. Uh, it can't produce plutonium, um, uh, so none of its waste can be used for bomb making. Uh, its waste is... Uh, it basically has to be stored for centuries rather than millennia because its radioactivity declines much faster. And it can be used in a liquid form in the fuel instead of a solid fuel. Instead of fuel rods, you know, these things in zirconium, um, you actually have a molten salt of this stuff, which is the fuel. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you dope that with enough uranium-235 to, to produce the to provide the neutrons, and then you get the thorium turns to U-233, and then that fiss fissiles, and you get fissions, what's the word, and you get um, the, 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 the activity there. Now, the U.S. Air Force was very keen on this, and it wanted to build a nuclear aeroplane. I didn't know that. In the early 1960s, and that program got killed, and that's probably just as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, it ju I just sort of hope that the Fukushima accident gives us a chance to go back and look at all these technologies and say, you know, is the pressurized water reactor, which after all is inherently unsafe in the sense that if you, if you let it get too hot, the water turns to steam and, it wants, and steam has less cooling properties than the water does because it's mm. a gas rather than a liquid. So, you know, it's inherently unstable. Let's go back and find an inherently stable nuclear technology and, and go back to the drawing board and try and start from scratch. So you'd like to see, a, a, it sounds like a, a renaissance, not just in uh, nuclear business, but nuclear design. Yeah, and one of the problems is, as I understand it, you can become a nuclear engineer and go through a huge amount of education and training, and you hardly hear the word liquid fuel. You know what I mean? It's such a sort of side technology mm. that everything is... There's a tremendous sort of vested interest in, a, in an existing entrenched incumbent technology, and it's very hard to, to, um, to turn an industry around in a different direction. Um, but maybe this is a chance to do that. Climate change may make it happen, if it happens. If it happens. Jack Fagan has a question. Um, when it happens. In your book, you suggest that locally grown food is not necessarily greener than food grown far away and transported. Can you explain this here in artisanal food country? <laughs> yeah, I'm in, <laughs> um, I'm in the lion's den a bit on this one. I Come with us yeah. to the farmer's market. And, and <laughs> I love locally grown food, and, you know, 
uh, you sell support it, and I sell like, some yeah. from, from off my farm, etc. Uh, but I think, on the whole, it's a luxury rather than a being good for the planet. It's something that we can afford to do because we're rich rather than something we should do for the poor. Uh, and here's why. Um, uh, if you add up the, uh, the energy costs of transport of food, for, you know, green beans from Africa to, to my plate in, in England, um, about 4% is the freighting it from Africa. Um, about 40% is me driving to the store and getting it. Well, that's going to be there whether it's local food or not. Mm. <laughs> uh, and um, and the, the, the real advantage, though, is isn't it wonderful that, that I can support an African farmer by buying his produce? And I think that's the, the key argument, that, that you know, we, we, we in Europe have these gigantic tariff barriers against food produced in Africa, one of the consequences of which is that there is a thriving market in agricultural produce coming to London from Kenya. It's not food. It's cut flowers. Right. Why is that? Because it doesn't hit the agricultural tariff barrier because it's not food. Do you see what, I mean, it's, it's just bonkers that we're discriminating. Now, as a farmer, if, if we had free trade in the world, I'd probably be bust because my costs are, are too high in Europe. But I'd rather that than, than um, continuing to be unfair on the rest of the world. I think you grow what, you, what you're good at where you can in the world as efficiently as you can, and you use less land doing it. You know... Uh, I don't, I, if I had to grow bananas in, in north of England, I, would, I could do it. It would take a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. um, I'd rather the b bananas were grown in Africa or the Caribbean or something, uh, and they didn't try and grow wheat in the Caribbean. We grew wheat where we were, and we swapped. We're both better With off. With global warming, all I have to do is wait a while, and you can grow bananas. In, in do you know which country grows the most bananas in Europe? No. Iceland. Uh, explain that one. Cheap, well, cheapest greenhouses. Because uh, they're over geothermal, geothermal, yeah, geothermal energy. Kevin Kelly just brought up his own question. <laughs> <laughs> what are you worried about? Second question. Were you always an optimist? Was there a trigger? Um... Um, Start with the first one. What are you worried about? And then let's get the history of your sunny disposition. Um, uh, religious fundamentalism is the short answer. Um, oh, that's Kevin, not you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, inside joke. He's a Christian. I think he isn't, but I don't know. I wouldn't describe myself. I describe myself as an atheist. You're a zoologist, <laughs> um, but um, I was brought up as, a, as an Anglican. But that's the mildest form of the virus. It's really a vaccine. Um, uh, 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 <coughs> um, the, what, what worries me is the demography of religious fundamentalism. In other words, in Catholicism, in Protestantism, in, in Islam, in Judaism, the, the extremists are having more babies than the moderates. The, the, this is quite a striking it's, phenomenon. It's going down, though. Is that okay? In, all, in the, in the yeah, extremists? Yeah. Even Mormons are having fewer kids. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, the, oh, thank you. I need to st stop worrying. I can be an optimist again. <laughs> what are you worried about? Come on. I'm worried about the fact that... Um, we shut down the world economy very nearly for good in the 1100s when China 
went all sort of superstitious. Arabia burnt all its books and turned its back on freedom of inquiry. The the medieval renaissance based around the University of Paris and Abelard and Eloise and people like that was shut down by a thug called Bernard of Clairvaux. Um, We came close to extinguishing the flame in that century. Now, luckily, there was a bunch of Tuscan merchants um, and people like Fibonacci, who was going across to North Africa and picking up ideas like zero and Indian numerals and things like that, who kept the flame alive. Now, if the... the, um, What's the word I'm looking for? If the bigots got hold of, of the entire world, could they shut it down for good? I don't think so, but I do occasionally worry about it. Your second question was, have I always been an optimist? And the answer is no. Um, I, back in the 70s when I was at university, I was a standard environmental ultra-pessimist. Uh, and I thought, I genuinely, I, I knew... Who that did the, you get that from? Who are you paying attention to? I got now? it from E.F. Schumacher and, uh, um, uh, you know, all those kind of... He was the British version mm-hmm. of um, yeah. Limits to Growth. He did it here as well, believe me. Did he? Yeah, yes. Right, exactly. And me and everyone I knew. I... I thought that, well, I'm not going to live as long as my parents because uh, of this cancer epidemic caused by pesticides. Uh, so I need to sort of kind of enjoy myself while I can. Um, but there's not much point in getting a proper job because um, uh, my country's in decline economically and it's all going to get worse. And remember, you know, this is, we were brushing our teeth in the dark, you know, and all that. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? The, well, you probably don't remember that, but the, the British... Let the hippies freeze in the dark was the... British the minister of... Energy said, you know, advised us to brush our teeth in the dark to save electricity during the oil crisis. Shower with a friend also came Um, up in that. Yes, (laughs) I was a little young for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, And uh, so, um, so economically, environmentally, the the the, uh, health-wise, I just thought it was going to get worse and worse. And I realised about the age of. 21, that nobody had ever said anything to me optimistic about the, inter- about the planet that I could remember, not even in a pub. <laughs> you know, it, and, and so I was rather taken by surprise when London had this boom in the 80s and everybody got rich and started flashing around with champagne and things like that. I thought, hang on, I thought it's not supposed to happen, it's supposed to be declined. I genuinely believed that I, I was economically illiterate, I was a zoologist, I lived in my own little bubble, and I just... I just all I read was the newspapers, and they said everything's getting worse, and I thought so. So for me, this is a Damascene conversion. I mean, I'm a sort of zeal of the apostate type here. Um, sorry, back to religious imagery. Was, was okay. You know, people always ask, and I'll ask: Was it a moment, or was it a year, or was it a particular offer, or what got you? It was dribble, 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 little bits and pieces here and there. But I would say, if I want to give one name of someone who, at first, I thought was talking nonsense, and then I gradually realized it wasn't. It was Julian Simon. Ah, another one. Yeah. You like, paid just attention like, just to like, his bet with Paul Ehrlich and all that? Well, I didn't really know about the bet to start with. I mean, I, I read The Ultimate Resource, I guess. Does that, does that have the bet in it? I can't remember. Maybe it does. Um, but uh, uh, but it, it's a gradual thing, you know. You change your mind. And, and so what I did was I started sort of Looking, I, I was a newspaper columnist in the late 90s, and, and, and I, the, the acid rain thing had had, had a big impact on me because I'd realized, actually, you know, a lot of the stuff I wrote about that, about how all the forests were in trouble and nothing could be done about it and da-da-da, 
that's actually nonsense. And I, and I began to get a bit, you know, began to question other things, etc. And I started writing contrarian columns about things. And, um, uh, and then you start seeking out the evidence. And you, I think I've always tried to falsify my views. Of course not. None of us do. We're all subject to confirmation bias. But, but the, the, to, I, during the writing of this book, I literally went out and I sought out issues where I thought, okay, well, this is bound to, you know, I can't, uh, happiness was one. I thought happiness was an issue where I was going to have to concede. Yeah, okay, we're getting richer, but we're not getting happier. But I'd rather, you know, have a flush toilet and be unhappy than um, have a no flush toilet and be unhappy. Um, <laughs> you know, happiness isn't everything, was, was what I thought I was going to have to. <laughs> um, but actually... You know, so for me, it was quite a moment when I came across the, the, lit, the new literature on happiness and discovered that the Easterlin paradox mm. had been largely refuted and that actually there is good evidence of a correlation between happiness and, and income. Okay, so you're, there's some career things going on. Here. So you got a PhD in zoology? I did. Were you a practicing zoologist? <laughs> that makes it sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do it with animals? <laughs> I studied the sex life of birds um, and Chickens, what I did was no. I attached radio transmitters to pheasants to try and work out who the males mated with which male mated with which female and this kind of thing it's a polygamous bird, it's a very unusual bird for being polygamous most mammals are polygamous, most birds are monogamous mm -hmm. so why is this an exception and what does it tell you about the evolution of polygamy and monogamy the evolution of mating systems it was a wonderful thing to spend three years doing. It was completely esoteric, completely useless for the world. I can't believe I got a grant to do it, but there you go. It was fun. From the government? From the government. So uh, a couple of years later, you're an editor at The Economist, which presumably there's not that many PhD zoologists on the staff there. Well, funnily enough, my successor but two as science editor was in the same zoology department at the same university as me. Jeff Curry, still the science editor. There you go. Uh, so the pay this, was presumably better. Yeah, exactly. The pay was definitely better. Um, I, I decided I wanted to become a, a, a journalist rather than a scientist because I wanted to be a mile wide and an inch deep rather than the other way around. Mm. And, um, I, you know, I, just to... I've got the attention span of a mosquito and I you know, wanted to satisfy it. Um, and so I started applying to, I applied to the BBC, a number of other jobs, etc. And, and then I got a job at The Economist because the science editor had died and they were looking for a, a, a new science correspondent. The science correspondent had become the science editor and they'd taken on one intern, they wanted to take on another to, to um, sort of see which one worked out and it worked out for me and not for... Um, Adrienne. So, and, wait a minute, you never studied journalism, you didn't, you didn't even major in English. That's true. How the hell did you become a journalist? Oh, I trained on the job, apprenticeship, good old-fashioned way, you know, I mean, The Economist was, remember, the great thing about The Economist, everything gets edited to hell before it goes out, and so you write some <laughs> dreadful piece of copy and it gets mangled, and you, you learn from that, and you start, so, so it's ah. a very collective product in that sense. Editors yeah. as teachers, I like that. And, and then, as I, an I'd, only, I'd only been there 11 months when the next, when the then science editor died. Um, this is all very biological. I didn't do it, I promise. Um, <laughs> They were both wonderful people, and yeah, <laughs> Richard Casement smoked. Is this a coincidence that your seniors kept dying? Well, uh, I was the first person to edit the science section of The Economist and live. <laughs> <laughs> there are two or three of us now. Okay, so you bring your scientific perspective and your biological perspective to 
a journalistic job where it's an economist. The economy is stuff you're looking at. Now, ecology is said to blend with economics in some fashion. Is that actually the case? I think there was a wonderful parallel, and it was one I was very interested in. Not so much the ecology as the evolution. The evolutionary view of the world teaches you a, 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 about emergent properties, teaches you about spontaneous order, teaches you about uh, nobody being in charge. You know, there's no master gene in the genome. There's no, uh, there's no master species in the ecosystem. What you see is a pattern and an ordered pattern, but it emerged from below. It didn't get ordained from above. And for me, economics was very similar. Understanding why certain products took over the world when others didn't was not about deciding whose policy had decided that we're all going to buy iPhones this year, but, but about the bottom-up emergence of, through competition, through um, natural selection, if you like, incredibly close parallels. And, of course, actually, intellectually, they come from the same part of the Scottish Enlightenment. I mean, it's no accident that Charles Darwin was reading Adam Smith at, at university, etc. Mm. There's the, the, this idea that when you no longer consider God to be in charge you start to get the idea of spontaneous order. And it comes from David Hume and uh, Adam Smith and, and Charles Darwin. It's the same idea appearing in different fields. These are all Protestants. Is that an accident? Um, well... Uh, they, they weren't listening to a pope. Voltaire. They were arguing with lots of other kinds did, of Christians sort of like did them. Did Voltaire was... start as a Catholic? That's a good one. I mean, certainly, um, Charles Darwin was a... Uh, uh, Nonconformist background, you know. Mm -hmm. um, what was it? Was it Congregation Unitarian, something like that? You know, it's a good. As Herman Kahn says, Unitarians believe in at most one God. <laughs> yeah, was it the, the Unitarian terrorist burned a question mark into someone's lawn? <laughs> <laughs> Where else are you going to hear Unitarian jokes? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I, um, I wrote a biography later of Francis Crick, the great um, Which you did a book on, right. Which, who I did, wrote a book about. And, and Crick was a... Um, well, he, his parents were Congregationalists uh, when he was born, but they had been Unitarians. They kind of switched church. Uh, and again, you know, there's a little bit of a streak there. There's an open-mindedness about nonconformist Protestants that, that helps. But I'm not convinced that it's the only thing that, that, that counts. Um, there is, um, yeah, no, I was going to tell a joke, but it's a bit involved. Okay, four engineers in a bar. <laughs> you know this one? Genetic engineer says, God is a genetic engineer. Why? I've looked in the genome. That was done by a genetic engineer like me. Um, second one says, no, you're wrong. God is a mechanical engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer. I tell you, that skeleton was built by a mechanical engineer. The third one says, no, you're both wrong. I'm an electrical engineer. That brain was built by an electrical engineer. God is an electrical engineer. And the fourth one says, you're all wrong. God is a civil engineer. How do I know? I'm a civil engineer. Um, who else would put a waste disposal pipe through a recreational area? <laughs> and it kind of... <laughs> It, get, it gets to the point of unintelligent design. That's why intelligent design is wrong, because it's not intelligent, the design. It's clearly not intelligent design. I'd love to finish with that, but I want to finish with a question which <laughs> won't be answered this year, but will be answered this century. 
And it's the, the question which keeps coming up in relation to markets and top-down and bottom-up and so on, which is the question of China. So here's China, top-down as it can be. And uh, you know, people I know who work with China in various things, whether they're trying to do really green cities, they're trying to do nuclear, they're trying to do genetic engineering, they're trying to do this, that, and everything. It's full speed ahead with amazing sophistication and serious money. Now... It's not only top-down, it has this other peculiar quality, which is that so far the Politburo in China and all of the senior officers have been trained either as engineers or as scientists. And they are now in competition with nations like the United States and Britain and India for that matter, which are nations run by lawyers. Who's going to win? Are you sure India's run by lawyers? I've got a feeling that... The Take that one off. Right? Yeah, My yeah, ignorance yeah, will... Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you're right. I mean, the current British... America's run by lawyers, I can tell you that. The, the current British cabinet doesn't have a single scientifically trained person in it. I think that's kind of depressing. Um, uh, it, but leaving that point aside, and I completely agree mm -hmm. with you. I, you know, Top-down well, scientists versus bottom-up, who goes... You know, versus chaotic... Yeah, lawyers. I don't think of lawyers as bottom-up people. I think of them as top-down people. But, but let me just, just come back at you on China, because I'm not convinced it is at that, that, that top-down a place. What happens when you have a Maoist society is that everything is top-down. And when suddenly Deng Xiaoping comes along and says, um, Communist Party's still in charge, but you can do anything you want, suddenly you're putting a bottom-up system in place, top down. In other words, you're stripping away all authority except the Communist Party on top. So you're taking away all the intermediate layers, all the, all the, the, the layers of, of government that, that get in the way of people doing things are gone in China. It's an, an incredibly free place to, to, to be an entrepreneur unless you cross the Communist Party, in which case you're in deep trouble. Mm -hmm. So um, basically I would argue that with one exception, it's actually rather a bottom-up place. And, of course, the other thing Deng Xiaoping does is uh, remove tariff barriers and give it the, the most free trade, um, and the most economically open um, uh, economy pretty well in the world, and that makes a huge difference. So I don't think China is an exception to this rule. Now, where I will agree with you is that um, I can't see that regime uh, adjusting gracefully to put it that way, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that at you some You think point, it's brittle politically? Yeah, at some point there's going to have to be an almighty political earthquake to get the Communist Party out of the way, and that could mess things up terribly for the economy as well as for everything else. Whereas India, for all its corruption, etc., is a sufficient democracy to, um, uh, you know, to have small earthquakes rather than big ones um, as, it, as it adjusts. Um, uh, so I do think that you know the Communist Party regime is a problem and it is a brutal and horrible regime. I'm not I'm not apologising for it, but I I also think that that's a much freer society for entrepreneurs to operate in than you make out. So net net, um, this is the lead into the next talk. Oh, sorry, yeah. can I just ask you one question? Yeah. If if your publisher and maybe this happened to you, your Chinese publisher. Chinese translation publisher. I guess there is one, yeah. Said, um, we want to take out two pages on the history of China before we publish the book. Do you say yes or no? Mm, I'd probably look very closely at what two pages. 
basically a lot of rude remarks about Ming emperors was mainly what it went, but there was the odd dig at Mao in there as well. Mm -hmm. So have, have you faced this? Is that what yeah. You, mm -hmm. And what did you say? I ended up saying yes. I went to talk to a lot of people. I talked to, um, you know, professors of Chinese blah, 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 etc. And because uh, I didn't want to. I, I, I felt the principle was important. Um, but what they explained to me was, look, it's your publisher who's self-censoring self here. Mm -hmm. because he goes to jail if he publishes your book and the regime doesn't like it. So he's got to go through your book and say, I don't think I can publish that page because I'll go to jail. Um, uh, and in the end, if they're only taking out two pages, um, uh, sure, they'll miss out on some juicy stories about Ming emperors, but uh, they'll get the point. Um, I would go for it if I were you. you know. So With I a little did. difficulty, they could probably find it on Google Books anyway if they want to see the expurgated exactly. parts. Yeah. Anyway, I hope that was the right thing to do. So this leads into next month's talk from Ian Morris, um, Why the West Rules for Now. And it sounds like your bet is that China is brittle and will not rule by mid-century. Put your money on India. Put your money on India. How about India versus Europe, North America? Well, forget Europe. We're, we're, a, we're a sideshow for the next 100 years. We're a comfortable sideshow, you know. It's going to be all right. Um, but, and we're going to get a ton of innovations, but they're going to come from places like China and India. You know, I mean, you know, I've, we'll get lovely new pharmaceuticals to keep us healthy in our old age, but they'll have been invented somewhere else. Uh, and that's not entirely true. Of course, entrepreneurship can happen in Europe, but nothing, it's nowhere near. It's hard. It is. It's going to be hard. Yeah. And I very much fear that although you're going to be a much more vigorous economy than Europe, um, you're not going to be as vigorous as China and India. Okay, that's a prediction. We'll see how it works out. Thank you all for coming. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.